I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Art and Science with Arthur I. Miller and his book, Colliding Worlds, how cutting-edge science is redefining contemporary art. Arthur I. Miller is an emeritus professor of history and philosophy of science at the University College London. He is the author of several acclaimed books, including Einstein Picasso, Empire of the Stars, which was shortlisted for the 2006 Aventus Prize for Science Books, and 137, which we've discussed on a previous Little Atoms. An experienced broadcaster, lecturer and biographer, he's particularly interested in the relationship between science and creativity, and we'll see that in his latest book, which is Colliding Worlds, How Cutting-Edge Science is Redefining Contemporary Art. So Arthur, welcome back to the show, first of all. It's great great to have you back. I want to talk, first of all, before we get into the book, about its background, really. Where does your interest in art come from? Well, I never really um, left art to the extent that I was always interested in art. And I grew up in New York City, Mm -hmm. which is a great place for famous museums, which I frequented as much as possible. When I went to um, undergraduate school at City College, if you were smart, or at least thought you were smart, you went into physics. I never regretted my choice, but however, I always felt that I was rather restricted by it since my interest went into art, history, philosophy, and and psychology. I earned a PhD in physics at MIT and uh, taught physics for for a number of years. And then I decided, I was always, in the back of my mind, I had those pesky, what is the nature of questions Mm -hmm. that I was always thinking of. And in particular, what is the nature of creativity in science? Mm -hmm. What is the nature of creativity generally? How does the mind work? And so I decided to go for it. And um, read the original German language papers in physics at the beginning of the 20th century, papers by Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, Pauli, Schrodinger. And what jumped out at me was the importance of visual thinking in making their scientific discoveries. And also the emphasis that these people put on symmetry and beauty. So this opened up my research, not only for creativity in science, but also another interest, creativity in art. Uh, I was interested in how did Einstein do it? How did Bach do it? Did they touch the cosmos? How did their minds work? So I did research for a few years in cognitive science, using essentially episodes in the history of physics Mm -hmm. as data for theories of psychology and see what I could get out of that. 
Americans, and I developed a model, which I call the model of network thinking. So that's how I I essentially moved into art and science. And I was always passionately interested in the relationship between art, science, and technology. And that relationship in the 21st century has blossomed into a new art movement. And we hear a lot of rumblings about that the avant-garde is dead. Well, not so. This new art movement that I call Art Psy is the new avant-garde, producing as it does works that go radically beyond anything that has come before. I want to look at go back to that idea of creativity that you've already raised, the idea of creativity in science. Because there is this, we all immediately viscerally understand this divide between science and the arts. Arts are, I don't know, supposed to be emotional things. Science is supposed to be a logical thing. But obviously, at the end of the day, people are still building something, creating something, making something. So what is this definition of creativity that somehow seems to leave out science? Well, it shouldn't. That's a short-sighted version of it because uh, creativity in science is just as emotional as creativity in art. Scientists are creative just just as artists are creative. Mm-hmm. And what I believe, and I've shown in a number of case studies, in particular of Einstein and Picasso, mm-hmm. that at that nascent, ma- almost seemingly magical moment of creativity, boundaries dissolve between artists and scientists, and both think along a common conceptual line. So, for example, in 1905, the reason why Einstein looked into another theory to replace what was going on at that time was because, well, he had no arguments with the equations of the physics of 1905, but rather with the way that scientists interpret these equations Mm -hmm. and interpret them in ways that imply asymmetries, which to him were not inherent in nature. And indeed, I'm paraphrasing the very first sentence of the relativity paper where he makes this statement, and he found these asymmetries to be unbearable. And so the theory of relativity was a response to his aesthetic discontents. And Picasso, in creating Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, his breakthrough painting, which contains the seeds of cubism, Mm -hmm. what was most on his mind, what most inspired him, were developments in contemporary science, technology, and mathematics. And so, at the beginning of the 20th century, scientists were beginning to think like artists, and artists like scientists. And Leonardo would have been in agreement with this, because uh, for Leonardo, there was no distinction between art, science, and technology. And indeed, his fabulous drawings of airplanes and trains. He considered every bit as much art as the Mona Lisa. I'm going to come back to Leonardo in a moment, but first of all, I wanted to raise, similarly on this, you know, the the creativity idea, there's there's an epigram in this book, a wonderful quote by Paul Klee, which says, art does not reproduce the visible, rather it makes visible. And you could easily replace the word science for the word art. What are we talking about when we talk about the visible and the invisible? Well, he put it very well in that the common quest of artists and scientists Scientists is to look, is to explore a world beyond our sense perceptions. Mm-hmm. And so the common quest is to make visible the invisible somehow or another. You mentioned Leonardo and that Leonardo would not have seen such an obvious divide between art and science. So what happened then? What path did we follow latterly after Leonardo? Let's talk about what happened between then and, and the point where we get up to the point where science and art starts to, well, basically the beginning of the 20th century. Right. Well, what, what happened with in, in Leonardo's time is that others, such as Albrecht Dürer, were also um, playing around mm-hmm. playfully in, in creating images uh, that combine both art, science, and, and technology. And then in 1687, a fissure occurred, bifurcation occurred with the publication of Newton's Principia, mm-hmm. which uh, set down 
the modern laws of motion. And from that point on, science was considered to be the real thing, the quest for truth, for objective truth, Mm -hmm. while art was just for decoration. They began coming together, flirting with one another through the 19th century, but it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that they began to merge again in the works, uh, beginning in the works of Einstein and Picasso. And then spinoffs of, of Cubism, a very scientific form of art, were uh, futurism and surrealism. But artists in the first half of the 20th century used the ideas of science and technology, but not the media. And they both began to become abstract, more or less in parallel with one another, both science and art. And we're going to look more closely at some of those movements in in the second part of the show. But I want to leap, well, leaving really the avant-garde behind for a bit and and leaping forward in in the book a bit and spend the rest of this part talking about art and science or art sci in the mainstream. You sort of parallel the story of the the rise of the um, the history of 20th century art with the rise of computer-generated art, CGI, and you visit... Pixar and talk about you know the, the rise the beginning of computer generated art in cinema and these things I mean they're, they're inevitably going to be linked but I'm, I'm specifically labeling this thing as mainstream media rather than the avant-garde art world so let's talk about this development of that crossover between art and science in the mainstream first of all well the mainstream it began in the early 1960s I've even located the beginning in 10th <laughs> Avenue and 4th Street um, it was the it was Montmartre come to New York City. Mm-hmm. It was the haunt of uh, Robert Motherwell, Robert Rauschenberg, Andy Warhol, John Cage, and Jean Tanguelet. And electronics, a lot of electronics have become available, but uh, artists really didn't know how to use them, and they were rather dangerous to use, too. Uh, luckily, the critical mass was completed, so to speak, with the entrance of Billy Kluver. Billy Kluver was a, his day job was as a scientist at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, was the American Telegraph and Telephone Company's uh, highly innovative research center. But Kluver was no ordinary scientist. He went back and forth between the worlds of art and science, and he collaborated with all of the artists I mentioned between 1960 and 1966. In 1966, he decided to, it was time for a large-scale collaboration. So he brought uh, 30 colleagues from uh, Bell Labs down to the East Village and hooked them up with uh, 10 artists and came up with the show Nine Evenings in Theater and Technology, Mm -hmm. Theater and Engineering, I should say. And it was uh, nine performances, performance art. It was where Kluver and his colleagues and the artists put together cutting-edge electronics and used them for performances, sound performances in the case of Cage uh, and other sorts of performances in the case Mm -hmm. of Rauschenberg and others. Amongst those who were inspired by it was Yasha Reichert, who was a curator at the Institute for Contemporary Art in London. And she, two years later, uh, put together a show called Cybernetic Serendipity, which was to um, put on show the potential, the creative possibilities for computers and art. And so computer art began to grow. But however, uh, in the 1970s and, and 1980s, there was a, a break off, so to speak, mm-hmm. a wane in collaboration between artists and scientists, uh, owing to the Vietnam War and the perceived association of scientists with the military. Mm-hmm. But that began to, but in the 1990s, in the 1990s, there were stunning developments in, in biotechnology, such as in vitro fertilization, mm-hmm. uh, organ transplants, functional magnetic resonance imagery. And artists found they could not afford not to take into account these new developments because mm-hmm. it, it allowed them to represent emotions and nature in ways that went beyond paint and, and chisel. 
And so they found themselves learning subjects which they had never heard of before. And money was pumped into this by the Welcome Trust, who started a, um, a program called SciArt, and collaboration between biologists, biomedical people, and, and artists. It was extremely successful. And that's what essentially kicked off the uh, SciArt, what I call Art Sci, uh, began to really grow in the 21st century. But uh, let me take a step back in that. I'm not saying that there were no collaborations between artists and scientists before that, because science and technology began to really forcefully show itself to the, the world in mm. which we live, in actually in the 1990s, but most emphatically in the 21st century. A lot of artists began to use science and technology, but that's no big deal. Science Artists always use science and technology. But a growing number began to become scientist technologists. This new breed of artists were at the core of a new avant-garde, a new form of art that I call art side. And to give you an example of uh, one of them is Tristan Perich, a, um, a musician in New York City, classically trained musician, mm -hmm. who now often writes music on, an, on a single chip within bits of one and zero. And one of his pieces is called the One Bit Symphony. Well, let's just stick with how those developments influence medium and film and computer games and my mobile phones i think you know, we're going to talk later on about the you know the collaborations of science and art in the avant-garde art world but ironically i think a lot of those works that we talk about would be more recognizable to most people as a work of art than a computer game or uh, you know an app on my mobile phone yeah. is and yet a lot of those people that came out of that same movement are obviously working in those digital media as well right well the definition i think we're getting into the definition of what is art mm. and uh, there was never a one-line <laughs> definition of that a lot of trees in the amazon rainforest have been felled on that one aesthetics too but i mean to try and cut through it um Art today is need not be anything that is beautiful. Mm -hmm. you walk around a gallery, you say, "Is not painting beautiful?" Art today is that which is controversial. I mean, look at the piece that won the the Turner Prize a few years ago. It was a large room, and uh, you turn the light switch on and off, and that's it. And to me, that's conceptual art with no concepts. Uh, whereas art, I a priori before all else has concepts because it, it is produced by science, technology, computers, and mm -hmm. algorithms. Now the notion of what is aesthetic. And when I give lectures, people, veins stand out in some people's heads. They say, this art, this aesthetic, I don't, this is not beautiful. Well, the aesthetics in classical art is totally subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. But aesthetics, but we should remember that just as there is aesthetics in art, there has always been aesthetics and science. Yeah. And aesthetics and science have become more objective, particularly since the late 19th century, with the emergence of mathematically based elegant theories. Mm -hmm. And if you ask a, if a scientist says to you, an equation is beautiful, you say, what do you mean by that? He'll yeah. tell you what it was meant by that. If you take that equation and you change around certain variables in it, and if that equation maintains its form, it's a beautiful equation. For example, if you take an equation and you flip left and right, and the equation maintains its form, it is said to have mirror symmetry, mm -hmm. meaning that if you do an experiment in our world and you predict the result, that same result should be predicted and found in the mirror world. And in physics, you can arrange for a mirror world. Mm -hmm. And so mirror symmetry, for the most part, is okay. Now, the notion of 
aesthetics in the in what I call art sci is the aesthetics of not only an image, and an image need not be a visual image. It can be a sound image. It can be a sense image. Uh, it can be an image, a smell image, mm-hmm. well, an odor image is what I'm trying to say. It's the image plus that which produces the image, which can be code as well. Coding can be beautiful. Coding can be aesthetic. Mm-hmm. So this takes the notion of, of aesthetics and makes it more objectified as well. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Arthur Miller and we're talking about his book Colliding Worlds How Cutting Edge Science is Redefining Contemporary Art. And Arthur, I want us in this part to take a tour of the history of avant garde art in the 20th century, how art in the 20th century began to collaborate with science. And so, the obvious place for us to start, as you've previously written a book on it, is connections that you make between Picasso and Einstein. So, what fascinated you so much about, about those two in particular? What's the link? Well, my original fascination with them is first of all, my, my fascination with, with, with Cubism, the creativity, the, the genius of Picasso, the genius of Einstein. These two people, within two years of one another, Einstein is two years older than uh, Picasso, they never met one another. I guess they they knew of each other, but not in 1905 Mm -hmm. when Einstein discovered relativity theory, and when, or in 1907 when Picasso created Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Now, have you said those two things very carefully? A discovery and a creation? Are they not both creations? Well, Einstein discovered relativity theory because I believe relativity theory is out there, ready to be plucked out of the air, like Einstein talked of Mozart's melodies as if they're plucked from the air. You don't discover a Ford motor car. You create a Ford motor car. I sometimes say that Picasso discovered Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Mm-hmm. And for that, I would use it interchangeably. I'm glad you bring that up. Usually, it's he created it because he's the only one that could have created it. But however, with Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, is such a scientifically oriented, and it comes from science and technology, that uh, I believe it's, it's like relativity theory. It's out there, ready to be plucked out of the air. So let's talk about how, in that particular painting, and perhaps just give us a quick description of it, as we're talking on the radio, which is, which is not really the best medium for talking about art, but um, remind us what that painting is, and then we can talk about how... Picasso used the fourth dimension and things within within that painting. Right. Well, that, that the painting is made up of five demoiselles, five women, and you can think of it as a motion picture in five posed as a motion picture mm-hmm. in five frames, as I think Picasso did it with increased geometrization as you move from left to right, where the demoiselle on the far right, she's squatting, she's called a squatter, has a face that's simultaneously full face and perspective. And so where Einstein dealt with temporal or time simultaneity, Picasso dealt with spatial simultaneity. They both responded to the avant-garde 
at that time, the principal problem of which was the nature of space and time, even though they knew nothing of each other's work. And of course, inevitably, as as often happens, this painting was not received by the critical establishment particularly well. Yes, it was trashed by the critics as, as a nightmare, another big dog by Picasso. Picasso couldn't get rid of it, couldn't sell it, until finally, in, in fact, it wasn't exhibited until 1916, and it was sold in 1925 to a Parisian art collector who promised to have it hung in the Louvre. He never did. And then when he died in 1938, his uh, estate sold it to the MoMA for $25,000, which wasn't even a lot of money in those days. Picasso was enraged by it. I'm reminded as well, you talk in the book about um, Duchamp's painting, Nude Descending the Staircase, which is in a similar sort of time period. And it's a picture that as well as we'll, we'll talk about the, the sort of science influence as well, but it, it, it's a picture that would not exist without the emergence of photography and film. So let's talk about those emerging industries as well. Obviously, we talk about the scientific theories, but what discoveries and what industries were coming out around that time that also had an impact on Cubism? Well, the, the, the scientific, the impact of science on Picasso in 1907 was X-rays. He was, <laughs> uh, he was, I was infatuated with that because to him, X-rays indicated that, uh, or asserted, I should say, that what you see is not necessarily what you get. Mm -hmm. And that's in the case of the faces and the posing of the demoiselle. Somebody once asked Picasso whether he used actual women, uh, models, posing for it. Mm -hmm. He said, where would I get women that look like that? (laughs) Uh, Technology, it was the effect of cinematography and photography. Picasso was a highly innovative photographer at the turn of the century. And he was also interested in movies as well. And the five demoiselles pose as if they are five frames in a movie with increasing geometrization as you move from left to right. Mathematics, it was uh, geometry. The aesthetics that Picasso discovered in working on Demoiselle d'Avignon was the reduction of forms to geometry, just as the aesthetics that Einstein used was an aesthetics of minimalism to Mm -hmm. shave away all those asymmetries. Then there was the fourth dimension, simultaneity of full face and and, uh, profile. Besides the reduction of forms to geometry, which was one of the facets of mathematics that Picasso was interested in, there was also the fourth dimension. A cutting-edge problem for artists at the beginning of the 20th century was how to represent the fourth dimension. It was a fourth spatial dimension. If you can get up into that fourth dimension, you would have a God's eye view of the scene. You would see all perspectives at once. The problem was how do you project those perspectives down onto the two-dimensional plane of the canvas. Mm -hmm. The going consensus was perspectives in succession. And Picasso to Picasso, why do that? Why not all at once? Mm -hmm. But the problem was how to do it. Picasso thought for a long time over over this problem, produced literally hundreds of, of experimental sketches, and finally produced the face of the squatter as two perspectives at once, full face and profile. To him, that is a projection from the fourth dimension. I want to move on to, yeah, so Henri Poincaré, who was a scientist who really seems to be a big influence on a lot of artists at this time, so tell me why. Poincaré was a a, a giant in French science, mathematics, and philosophy. He he is the common denominator between Einstein and Picasso. Mm -hmm. Einstein read with great fervor Poincaré's book Science and Hypothesis, and it was important to his thinking towards relativity theory. Picasso never read Science and Hypothesis, nor, uh, for example, he, did he ever read anything about science, technology, and, and uh, mathematics. Well, he read newspaper articles <laughs> about it. But in the main, both 
Einstein and Picasso had think tanks. They had people around them who would feed them information as to what was going on. And Picasso's think tank was called uh, La Banda Picasso, Picasso's pals, essentially. And they told him about what was going on in science, technology, and mathematics. And a particular member of that circle, by the name of Maurice Ponce, was an insurance actuary with mm-hmm. a keen interest in advanced mathematics. And he would give lectures to La Banda Picasso in, in, uh, in bistros. And he liked to lecture on Poincaré science and hypothesis. And this is the way Picasso learned about the fourth dimension. We can imagine Picasso sitting back in a smoke-filled uh, bistro, perhaps after taking some hashish pills with everyone else, which was David Gur at that time, and listening to Ponce talking about Poincaré's view of the fourth dimension mm-hmm. and how you can project all, how you can project perspectives in succession. We can imagine Picasso leaning back on his chair and saying out loud to himself, why not all at once? Why, why one at a time? I want to bring in Kandinsky, who takes us a little bit further into sort of abstraction. Well, Kandinsky went where Picasso dared not go, mm-hmm. into complete abstraction. And Kandinsky was not influenced by four-dimensional space-time, because in physics the fourth dimension is not a spatial but a time dimension. Mm-hmm. Four-dimensional space-time was all a rage in 1910, but what influenced Kandinsky was E equals MC squared, which became the signature equation of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Now, E equals MC squared relates E, which is energy, to M, which is mass. But energy is amorphous, whereas mass is compact, localized. Now, Kandinsky interpreted this in a very free way that artists interpret science as everything is amorphous. And in 1910, he produced the first completely abstract painting. Let's move on to some of the other art movements, then, that came out of Cubism or followed after Cubism. Picasso working towards abstraction, but never achieving it. He didn't want to achieve it. He was essentially a classical figurative artist at heart, just as Einstein was essentially a classical physicist. And the futurists were, I mean, they were influenced by the modern world and machines and Speed technology, that sort of thing right. as well. Yeah, but to what extent, if we can detach those things from science, to what extent were they also influenced by the scientific theories of the time? They were influenced by the scientific theories of the time as concerns speed, it concerns machines that can make you go fast, airplanes, uh, early early automobiles. That was of great interest to them. Movement was of great interest mm-hmm. to them. Just as movement was of interest to uh, Duchamp. Uh, and movement concerns relativity theory mm-hmm. as well. But Duchamp was somewhat affected by developments in science. Relativity theory by 1911 was becoming uh, more known to the general public. And then to surrealism. So how does this movement end us up with the Surrealists? Well, the Surrealists, again, increased abstraction. That's essentially it. Yeah, they adopted Einstein, and Einstein, you know, let them call him a Surrealist as well. But the Surrealists seem to be, you know, when we, the imagery we, we often think of when we think of Surrealist work seems to be going further away from the abstractions of science into a more sort of dreamlike thing. So it's, it, it was the movement of that... 20th century avant-garde that I was most surprised to see linked to the, the scientific ideas. Yeah, they were affected by psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's Dali, which is very much affected yeah. by, by science. In fact, on, on Dali's bed table, when, after he died, they found a copy of Schrodinger's What is Life? Dali did a number of interesting paintings concerning science. Uh, one of them is uh, Persistence of Memory, I believe it's called. We have Drooping Clocks. Yeah. And uh, well, clocks in motion running slower than clocks at, at rest, which is, which is relativity. And then when he became involved with quantum theory, 
he fragmented everything. So when had everything turned in, turned into atoms. I was going to bring in quantum theory because we've talked about, in some respects, relativity and and you know Einstein's theories and how they how EMC squared influenced Kandinsky and what have you. But at the same time, what's going on as well is the development of quantum theory, quantum mechanics. You, you know, you got Bohr and Heisenberg, and that work is going on at the same time that these movements are working. So how is the development of quantum theory? interact with the art world development of quantum theory interacts with the art world in the sense of uh, in the sense of what's called the wave particle duality that atomic entities could be both a wave and a particle at the same time something which is uh, unimaginable so it's unimageable and artists such as mata tried to visualize that i, I think in, in clumsy ways but that that was the main effect on on artists i believe one can see in the development of quantum theory the notion of aesthetics plays a role in a criterion for selection Mm -hmm. between how you represent nature. Uh, There's the aesthetic of the wave and the aesthetic of the particle. And this was something, again, that jumps out of papers in quantum physics by Heisenberg, who came down on the side of the particle aesthetic, and Schrodinger, who came down on the side of the wave aesthetic. And these people fought bitterly for a couple of years over which is the proper way to look at nature. And then Niels Bohr stepped in and made it clear that the aesthetic choice is both. And I believe what affected Bohr here, because in in 1927, most of the outstanding problems in atomic physics had been solved Mm -hmm. using the new quantum mechanics of Heisenberg, the new wave mechanics of of, of Schrodinger. Mm -hmm. And Bohr at that time, late 1926, early 1927, came to the conclusion that although physicists were solving problems left and right, they really didn't understand what they were doing because they had moved away from fundamental problems. And for him, the most fundamental problem was the wave-particle duality. And uh, I believe that one tile in the mosaic that was his solution is cubism. Bohr, now Bohr's institute in Copenhagen uh, was uh, lavishly funded by the Carlsberg Brewery. So one would think that on he would hang on his wall... Uh, a Picasso or a Brock, mm-hmm. but uh, instead he had a painting by Jean Metzanger called Les Couillères, the Equestrian, done in 1912. And I think that's a clue to quite special interest that Bohr had in Cubism, because uh, Metzanger was considered to have been a second-rate Cubist artist, but a first-rate propagandizer of the genre. Now, in 1912, Metzanger wrote a book entitled On Cubism with, Al- with another Cubist artist by the name of Albert Gleitzis. And it was a widely read book. Bohr read it. And I'm sure that Bohr was taken by a particular passage in which they say, to paraphrase, that how you view a Cubist painting, that's what it is. And mm-hmm. a particular painting that Gleitzis, uh, that Metzanger and Gleitzis had in the book was a painting, Le Goutet, Tea Time, by Metzanger. It's a picture of a bifurcated woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you look at her... Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. You can be in full face, three-quarter face, and profile. And in I believe that in Cubism, Bohr interpreted Cubism as a means to look beyond visual perception. And in that way, shattering the certainty of the object mm-hmm. and revealing its ambiguity. And uh, in this sense, say, the ambiguity of the wave-particle duality. And Bohr came up with what he called the complementarity principle, which essentially says that the electron is a wave and a particle at the same time. That's a fact. How you look at it, that is to say, what experiment you use, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. In that way, cubism, art, gave Bohr a means to come to grips with this crazy ambiguity revealed by quantum physics. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Arthur I. Miller. We're talking about his book, Colliding Worlds, How Cutting-Edge Science is Redefining Contemporary Art. And so, Arthur, let's go on to art side then, this movement that you've coined. Let's, first of all, define it, or perhaps let's look at it the other way. What isn't art side? So what fits into that category, but what doesn't? What is not art side is art done by artists who just use science and technology. Now that's all fine and good. They produce what's called scientific visualizations and and some intriguing works. But the artists of interest to me are artists who do work that can reflect back on science and maybe lead to scientific discoveries. So arts eye is the following. I believe that art, science, and technology as we know them today are disappearing, fused into a third culture, Mm -hmm. the new avant-garde. Most outstandingly, one sees this in media art, which deals with animations, mm-hmm. uh, for example, sound art, in which artists sculpt space with sound, uh, data visualization art, in which uh, artists use algorithms to mine huge caches of data in order to represent these data aesthetically. And here, and they have a measure of aesthetics. The measure of aesthetics is that the higher the information content in a representation of data, the greater is the aesthetics. Mm-hmm. So in data visualization art, aesthetics and information content go hand in hand. And this is a dramatic extension of the concept of, of aesthetics mm-hmm. into the age of information. Because we live at, we, uh, what, what has happened is that the age of technology has become the age of information, mm-hmm. the age of data with a big D, the age of data visualization art. We'll look at a couple of those categories a bit more closely as we go. And um, and as we do, if you can, we want to talk about some of the practitioners of 
of this art as well. So if listeners want to see some of it, they can look up some people. But um, why is it not just art? It is art. It is a new art. But why not art? I mean, this has been... The art side thing has been a little bit controversial, shall we say. So um, what's the sort of the, the determinant that makes the two things together? Why is it not art or, on the other hand, science? Well, let me, let, me, let me say that. Let me begin by saying that there are a lot of people, too many people, who believe artists, that believe art is art and science is science and, you know, what's this business with art mm-hmm. sci or even art and science? I think that that's... I don't even like to deal with these people. This is, this is an antiquated uh, uh, way of, of, of looking at things. The way the discussion should begin and is much more fruitful because that's a dead end mm-hmm. the other way. The other way also, you have people who are criticizing subjects they know nothing about. The way these discussions go today is that there is a relationship between art and science. Let's take it from there. I believe that they're merging. Mm-hmm. Art, science, and technology are merging. And there are examples of that. In fact, uh, for my book, I interviewed oh well over 80 practitioners mm-hmm. of art science. And when I would mention to them that... Uh, uh, you're the denizens of a new culture. They say, well, what's the big deal? You know, we've been, you know, we've been doing this for, for a while. These are people who uh, have the facilities in art, science, and technology. And this is not unusual today. In fact, art students coming into art schools don't want to do, for the most part, they don't want to do painting, they, which is called with some derision flat art by, by people who, who do art side. They come armed with uh, coding. They can do coding. They know about electronics. They want to continue doing this. So you have emerging already within, sci- within science, emerging of biology and technology into biotechnology, mm-hmm. emerging of physics with electrical engineering into nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. You have departments of engineering sciences. Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, that would have, would have been considered as, a, as an oxymoron. But now these things exist, these, these people exist. And so it's not too far-fetched to think of people that are artists, scientists, and technologists mm-hmm. all at once. They don't have to be Renaissance people because with the convergence of the sciences, there's, in a, in a sense, less to know. Data that are considered as important and complicated go away. And so one can have people that do all three. And you do have them already. You'll be having them more and more. Now, I'm not saying that painting is dead. It will, it will always be there. There will always be people playing normal pianos and all the mm-hmm. rest of that. But there will be subtle changes. They will be out there on the side. And even painting, techniques of painting, will be more and more one with technology. Mm-hmm. All through this interview, I think my emphasis has been on how science has influenced the artists, how the artists are using science in their work. So the obvious question is, what's in it for the scientists? How can this art movement benefit science? That's the question of collaboration comes up. Say it's a double-edged arrow, so to speak. You have art affecting science and science affecting art. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right now, it's generally science affecting art. The artists get more out of it than the scientists. That, I think, uh, will change. Mm -hmm. Indeed, it is changing. There are cases uh, in my book For example, there is a fascinating case of a group called Dance Spectroscopy in which art, science, and technology are mutually affecting Mm -hmm. uh, one another. A platform originally meant for uh, simulating molecular motions Mm -hmm. was adapted by the uh, scientist uh, David Glowacki at Bristol University who headed a team of artists, scientists, and technologists and came up with a dance platform they call Hidden Fields. Mm-hmm. And Hidden Fields is Hidden Fields combines cutting edge interactive digital art 
with rigorous molecular dynamics and in it dancers movements are converted into energy fields that actually interfere with simulations of molecular motion mm -hmm. and give you a another way of appreciating the beauty of everyday motion through science and technology but these ultra fast algorithms cooked up for dance routines also have opened up new avenues of scientific research. They've enabled, for example, scientists to interactively manipulate chains of protein molecules towards studying ways that these molecules fold or combine and fold in such a way that they do not produce disastrous circumstances because protein folding is the way that organs, are, mm -hmm. organs are, uh, emerge in our bodies. And these methods turn mm -hmm. out, in many cases, to be 10,000 times faster than structure-finding brute force algorithms. And this is an unexpected benefit at the frontier of fused scientific and artistic creativities. And this is where I was going to talk about aesthetics, which we ended up talking about earlier on in the show. And you raised this idea of aesthetics in science in terms of the beautiful equation. And what I wanted to talk about was there are other, you know, there are other ways in which drawings, diagrams, I think scientific, you know, documents often have very beautiful and elaborate drawings and things in them. So is there something that that side of science can learn from artists? But artists could learn from scientists. Drawing is uh, common to both artists and scientists. And drawings by scientists, I've studied um, some uh, cases of drawing by scientists mm -hmm. from their original notebooks. And, for example, in, in the early 1950s, the task of biologists was to uh, translate two-dimensional data on DNA into three dimensions. And there's a famous uh, X-ray photograph by Rosalind Franklin. There's a famous X-ray photograph by Rosalind Franklin of DNA. And it's mm -hmm. like looking down the barrel of a gun and you see just some sort of symmetric design. And uh, she didn't know what to do with it, neither did her colleagues, until Watson and Crick came along. And Francis Crick's first stab at this was a now famous drawing of a helix with amino acids tagged on it. And then what Watson and Crick did was to take essentially ticket toy sets mm -hmm. and build an experiment visually mm -hmm. sculpting, very much like a sculptor does, to study the structure of the DNA molecule. Mm -hmm. So when in science, one sees all of the manifestations of what an artist does. That's the way scientists work on the frontier of their subject, like artists. We're going to move on to some of the, some of the categories then of, of art, if we can call them categories. And I want to start with bio-art, which you've, you've already vaguely alluded to earlier. But, um, well, a, a few years ago, you, you curated an exhibition that I was lucky enough to, to go along to. You invited me to, and, um, and there I met an Australian performance artist called Stellark. And he was he was a, a really lovely chap. We had a nice chat and, um, yeah, a delightful chat for a, a man that happens to have a, an ear on his arm. <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about why. Well, Stellark is among the biology-influenced artists who uh, explore the radical changes our bodies will undergo in the 21st century. We're going to have more and more chip implants. Mm -hmm. In fact, I believe that uh, the end point of all this many centuries from now will be essentially that we'll be cyborgs with just our with just a human brain in it mm -hmm. and the rest of our bodies will be parts that will have have sensory functions and all the rest of that stellark well the ear that stellark has a left ear embedded on his left arm mm -hmm. it's not really a real ear that's on your head 
is stellar stem cells woven into a biodegradable frame, mm-hmm. which is then embedded in Stellarx's arm and continues to grow into the shape of an ear. And these operations have been ongoing, series of operations have been ongoing since 2007. And there's a hole in his arm next to the ear, and into that hole will be inserted a Bluetooth device which will hook Stellarx up to the web. I'm Jay Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I've often talked on this show about the future of genetic science, genetic manipulation and stuff. One of the things that has come up more than once is um, is the idea of, of glow fish, of fish that you can buy in, in the US that have that sort of bioluminescence. And one of the um, one of the artefacts that you, you talk about in this book is a fluorescent rabbit which has the same jellyfish gene in it. It's sort of it's an interesting thing again because it's um well perhaps we should talk about the ethics of it really because we would often have those discussions about about the ethics of whether or not genetic manipulation in science itself is a good idea. So what is this? Uh, well, it <laughs> white oak catch uh, took a bunny, Alba the bunny, and uh, genetically modified it by inserting into it the green fluorescent <laughs> protein gene from a jellyfish that was bathed in blue light. Mm-hmm shines green, just as just as Alba did. Then he uh, instigated a series of debates concerning the ethics of uh, genetically engineering species that uh, did not exist previously. And there was a lot of outcry against doing this sort of thing. But uh, Catch reminded everyone that what is natural is, is, is a relative thing, mm-hmm. because uh, most of what we deal with these days, uh, plants, animals, I mean, dogs are not... These are dogs are terribly mm-hmm. hybrid. So you have to put all this in perspective that genetic modification has been going on for a long time. There is another artist in my book, Marion laval Jante, mm-hmm. who has massive amounts of horse blood pumped into her, transfused into her. And uh, she does this, what she does here is to investigate the borderline between animals and humans uh, because after all, a lot of uh, organ transplants these days are still done with animal mm-hmm. animal organs. And indeed, will you one day be you know growing human organs in pigs for that's right transplants? Yeah. yeah, so we'll just do them out of three dimensional printers. Mm-hmm. There's um she has a wonderful quote in the book, which is I gave her the equine experience. Or yeah, she said she, she felt stronger. She felt like a horse, <laughs> and when she performs, she wears stilts with the horse's hooves and stands next to a horse. Being statuesque herself, it's a very uh, a fabulous image, one might say. All of those artists that we've just described, again, they're obviously you know they're at the cutting edge of bio art, but again, all of them speak to a sort of ethical debate, political debate about the rights and wrongs of that type of you know medical science and and you know genetic manipulation yeah. and stuff. Is that something that we see right across? This new movement. Oh yes, and the, the and the bio part of the movement, particularly, and also the well, wider the, 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 in the wider movement as well. I well, mean. yeah, it goes across uh, robotics as well. Mm-hmm. This movement of uh, exploring the changes 
that the human body will the radical changes the human body will undergo in the mm-hmm. in the twenty first century becoming more and more mechanized chip implantation right now we we have hip implantation we have hips elbows uh you know so one has mm-hmm. all of these all this metal inside of one's body. The next step is metal inside of your brain as well to uh, give you a memory that you don't you don't forget anything and so on and soon the only thing as I mentioned will be left is 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 your brain. You spoke briefly in the introduction to this section about um, data, use of data to create art, and there's there's a fantastic illustration in the book, um, Aaron Coblin's flight patterns, which is basically, I mean, it, it doesn't describe it adequately enough, but it's it's like a, basically a map of the US with all of the, uh, the you know tracks of of airline flights. I mean, it glows. It's such a beautiful. It's such a beautiful artifacts yeah like, flight patterns uh by aaron Koblen is uh is a representation of the data from 250,000 airplane flights across the united states on 12 august 2008 and uh the snapshot i have in my book is from a time of day when there are lots of planes in the air and one sees a pattern emerging mm-hmm. the pattern of the continental united states yeah. the patterns are have always been of the essence in data analysis but it, more so today one deals with 10 billion trillion sets of uh data and Koblen's representation moved. It's constant. It's constantly on the move. And in fact, that is a characteristic of Art Sci. And that uh, Art Sci installations, there is no unique Mona Lisa. This is art that moves. It's art that's formed uh, many, many times by the viewer interacting with the electronic equipment. And I wanted to talk to widen it out a little bit into how this. How we widen this discussion out from you know from art and science into to engineering. So I wanted to talk about Neri Oxman. She's a artist that's basically designing a well a new form of con- a new way to use concrete, basically that more mirrors the bone structure. Yes, Neri Oxman is a uh, is an artist, scientist, technologist who works at the MIT Media Lab, mm-hmm. and she uh, specializes in designing buildings and chairs based on human bodies based on how our bones are formed and based on how we can be comfortable and so these for example her chairs and her furniture conform to different bodies they don't have one shape and that brings us nicely on to i want to talk about um places that are supporting these artists basically places that um you know where this art is created but also where it's exhibited and uh, you've just mentioned the MIT media lab but i wanted to talk about um well we'll talk about the welcome trust also is a is a um a very good supporter of this sort of art and i particularly want to talk about the welcome trust because you you mentioned Ken Arnold in the book who i briefly interviewed for this show right, I so had, i just had lunch with him today really yeah. <laughs> fantastic yeah. so um yeah well let's let's Talk about what these institutions, how these institutions have, have been supporting this type of work. Right. Well, uh, I guess we should begin with um, how products of art are received. Yeah, sure. In the establishment art world, they're not received very well at all. The establishment art world generally rejects products of art mm-hmm. because they violate the sacred canons of art galleries and that uh, they're not usually sellable, they're not usually durable, and sometimes they're downright dangerous. And one is reminded here of the situation in, uh, in 19th century France when uh, works of such artists as Monet, Monet, Cezanne, Seurat were rejected by establishment mm-hmm. art ex- exhibits. And so people formed their own exhibitions. One of them was named uh, Salon de Refusé, mm-hmm. the Salon of, Re- of the Refuse in, 18- in 1863. Today, the Salon de Refusé are uh, prominent buildings 
elegant buildings, often with laboratories attached to them, mm-hmm. such as uh, the Welcome Trust exhibit. Uh, although they don't have gal, although they don't have laboratories, as far as I know, uh, Oz Electronica in Linz, mm-hmm. Austria, a Science Gallery with a site in Dublin. Another one will open in uh, London in, in 2016. Another will open in London in 2016. Mm-hmm. And others are slated to open in Bangalore and in, in Singapore and New York. Laboratoire with uh, sites in Paris and in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then the Center for Art and Media, ZKM, in Karlsruhe in Germany. These are buildings, very elegant buildings, with laboratories attached to them, where these art side people can spend time, and they can also attend meetings, network, see what colleagues are doing, and maybe even sell their work too. Interestingly enough, some of the work, this whole movement is really gaining traction now. And some of it is being, more and more is being sold. But in particular, the big funding comes from places like the Welcome, uh, Google, Microsoft, Norton Antivirus. They're pumping money in and they're buying artworks for their lobbies Mm -hmm. so on. So the movement is is moving, but it hasn't. and, And even to appreciate the art, it's different than appreciating classical art where you walk into a, an art gallery, you know, like what well, the Tate Modern, you put your hands behind your backs and you, you walk around and peer at the various art, maybe look at it from the side to catch mm-hmm. brush strokes. And then without knowing a hell of a lot, you can say, that's pretty. But to really appreciate art side, you have to know something about electronics, something about computers, something about algorithms. And you have to be comfortable with ambiguity as well. Because there may be no definite image in there. The image can be from you interacting with the equipment. And the younger, younger people have, don't have much trouble with that because they grow up in a world of coding and a world of, of electronics. I was just going to raise that idea that you often the viewer is a participant in the exhibit in, in these things. A lot of CCTV and, mm. and sort of video recordings and things. Again, that seems to be a, you know, a, a theme that goes right across this. That sort of inter- interactivity, is that seen as important? Yes, that's seen as important. I mean, that, that's part of the new art. That this mm-hmm. movement, it, it's always moving. No one unique Mona Lisa. And one sees that, uh, particularly uh, if you want to see this stuff in action, you really want to see it in action, you should go to the art fair in every September at Ars Electronica in Linz, Austria. Mm-hmm. Not one painting is there. It's all all electronics. You've just mentioned some big organizations, Google, Microsoft. Norton, right, you know, right down to you know, the Welcome Trust and um, CERN that I've mentioned earlier yes. as well. I guess we can talk. We haven't talked yet about CERN, but you know, they, they seem like you know minnows compared to when we're talking about Microsoft or you know the sort of Silicon Valley giants at Google that are putting money into these things. But it suggests in some ways that is one of the problems with this arts a cost. Is it expensive? To, does it have to be expensive to produce? It seems like that could almost be a barrier to entry into, into, the, into this movement, that it, the time it takes to produce, the places that it's being produced and exhibited, and the people that are funding it suggest that you know, it's something that needs money. It really depends on the art. Some of it needs money. Some of it doesn't. Sound artists who sculpt space with sound, mm-hmm. they produce their sound and images. They combine sound and images a lot of the time, play off one another with creative algorithms. That they can do on their, on their computers. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't require a lot of money, uh, but they do perform and uh, sell their services. It's the situation that Picasso ran up against, too, that one has to earn a living. And Picasso earned a living by painting still lives. He sometimes painted in, in 1903, five. He was mm-hmm. painting 300 a year to make money so he could pursue his research, that, and it is research, towards Cubism. And uh, Similarly today, I know artists who... Uh, Drive taxi cabs who um, uh, one 
prominent computer artist and, and uh, computer scientist works for a hedge fund, does programming for that. So some art does require money, but also a lot of artists have adjunct positions at art schools, like the School of Visual Arts and Royal College of Art, uh, so on. Others have permanent positions, like at the MIT Media Lab, the NYU Media Lab, Pratt Institute, places of that sort. Those are the people, the, the independent people, find their niche in doing an art that simply doesn't require a lot of money. Others do require a lot of money input from these giant foundations who also buy their art and then finance that so they can finance their future works. It's the old story of the struggling artist. They the fi- eternal they, story. They find a way to survive. That's a distinction between artists, one distinction between artists and scientists, and that scientists can obtain a university position, obtain tenure, and then just sit back and, and work. Uh, artists have to sell their Mm-hmm. The ones who are out there who aren't associated with universities and most of them aren't have to sell their wares. Again, like Picasso and Brock and those people. It, it's a Darwinian situation. I've mentioned CERN a couple of times and um, there's a there's a sequence in this book where you talk about a, um, like an artist residence programme at CERN which actually seems to, I think, annoy some of the scientists in some way. Do these organisations always get this collaboration right or is there is there still resistance within... I mean, I guess within the art world as well as you've already talked about, but what about from the science world? I think, I think CERN finally got it right with the third person that they brought in, a, mm-hmm. a data visualisation artist. Generally, there is this uh, movement embedding a, an artist inside of a laboratory and I've seen absolutely ludicrous results emerge from artists who know no science whatsoever, look around, see strange things, and and, and produce art that has nothing to do with, with science. Uh, CERN is an institution, I know many scientists there, who are very cultured and feel that what they should, the artists that come in, should be professional artists, people who have already found their niche and uh, should produce something which uh, the scientists can learn from, which the scientists can communicate with the artists. And that's finally being done, I believe. That's the third artist in the residency program. One final question then, just to to finish off. And I sort of want to talk about the future, where this is going. And you've alluded to that a couple of times. And we talked, I asked you at the beginning of this part to come up with a a sort of definition of what was art side. The, The further we get into the future, the more powerful computers become and, you know, the media animation world and the, the, the world of computer games, the world of 3D visualizations and things. We're going to get to the point where anything, anything that artists can sort of conceive of can be possible, can be created in some way. So do we need to have boundaries do you think do you think that would be a healthy thing that they can create anything or do we need to be able to say you know like we defined what art sci is do we have to have no there are, there, there are no boundaries in art sci it's art science and technology have, have fused into one before this there was there was art and there was science uh there were artists who used science and technology but they didn't know much about it and their work didn't reflect back on science but now you have a merging of them and that is the wave of the future. That is the avant-garde. It's a niche movement. When people ask me who are the famous artists in it, and I mentioned maybe maybe Stellark is the most famous mm-hmm. one, the most you know has the most name notorious one. Perhaps. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, but I mean that's uh, that's that's about it. It's mm-hmm. a niche movement, and it's a movement which will which will no longer be avant-garde sometime in the future. I mean, uh, Monet, Manet, Cezanne, Pizarro, Picasso—they were all avant-garde in their day, and their works were considered as next to scandalous but they will become part of the uh, beloved art canon. 
Mm -hmm. And with that, the definition of art and science has been transformed, of art and aesthetics have been transformed. And that is continuing. Mm -hmm. And now we have a merger of them. And soon we can't imagine the next, what the next avant-garde will be. So we could look forward to buying tea towels with, uh, with glow-in-the-dark rabbits and photographs of Stellark Zero on them at some point in the, uh, in the near future then. Actually, I'm going I'm to ask one more question because um, we've mentioned a few of the artists and we've mentioned a couple of times Ars Electronica, which is the, so the Linz art festival that, that happens every year. But um, where else now can listeners see some of this stuff? Uh, they can see it in um, at, at the Centre for Art and Media in Karlsruhe at Ars Electronica, at Science Gallery uh, in Dublin, coming to London in 2016, Le Laboratoire in Paris, and in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts as well. There is uh, Documenta, also another art fair that features uh, art and science. And at MoMA, Museum of Modern Art in New York City, you can see media art. And the Tate, which is very resistant to uh, anything in the 21st century, does have an exhibition by Aaron Koblen who did uh, flight patterns, mm-hmm. a whole room devoted to, to an exhibition by him. So one has an incursion of the of art side, mm-hmm. not of art influence, not of biology influence thought or physics influence thought, but of the whole thing combined. I've been talking to Arthur I. Miller, and we've been talking about his book, Colliding Worlds, How Cutting Edge Science is Redefining Contemporary Art. Arthur, thanks for taking the time to tell me about it. Oh, great pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews new journalism and more on our relaunched website littleatoms.com Thanks for listening Even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to less than similar brands They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.